0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
1: This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
2: Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting with Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. Three longtime collaborators. Our fourth, Audie Weiner, is away for most of the show. He's going to jump in Q4 for our interview segment. We are here in the first quarter. We're going to do a little bit of COVID before diving into sports. We've got a couple of open topic segments, Q2 and Q3. And then we have an interview with Ron Yurko, longtime friend of the show, Carnegie Mellon statistician, Ron Yurko. We talk about the state of sports analytics and also get a little performance evaluation, get a little coaching and feedback from a loyal listener about Wharton Moneyball and how we can improve our show. We're always interested in doing that. Thought we'd do it publicly this time. All right, gentlemen. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon for the show that goes up Wednesday. Going to talk a little COVID before we dive into sports. What is going on in the world of COVID? What has caught your eye recently?
3: Well, I think the biggest news was you know we had been talking about the I'll call let's call it the hybrid vaccine that was going to protect against earlier versions of COVID, mainly Omicron, and now the most newest variant BA five. Uh, Moderna and Pfizer have both been working on it, but Moderna's has actually been approved in Great Britain. So I think that's probably uh, the biggest news. And then the question becomes, you know, something we've been talking about, a lot of people have waited for this shot to come out to act as their second booster shot. I can speak for myself. I've already been boosted twice. So now I have to start reading up on, you know, when it gets approved in the United States, does that, do I make that my fifth shot or is that okay to do? Or what's the recommendation then for people that already have a uh, boosted twice? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm
1: mm-hmm. one, I'm one of those people that's kind of held off on his own fourth booster. I mean, a, cause I haven't really kind of, I, I, I think I'm still not in the age group recommended by the CDC for. A oh, booster. Don't,
2: brag. don't brag.
1: Thank you. That, that, do you like that little humble break? Yeah, uh, I mean, anyway, but, uh, but regardless, uh, you know, um, you know, one of the kind of, I guess, rationales for holding off is exactly this: that you know, like, if the vaccines are about to get a patch, for lack of a better term, uh, to kind of get updated to the more recent variants, I, I you know, why not wait on them? Um, but again, you know, how long of a wait is that going to be before say, for example, something I can walk down walk down to CVS and get here in America? I assume that you know the kind of approval process for this Moderna one is in process in the United States as well, but I don't, who knows when it's going to actually
2: come through. Do we have any indication of what the difference in efficacy is going to be? Do we have theoretical or anything empirical on this? Do they have to show that to get approval in the UK?
3: I'm looking just quickly at the New York times article that was there. And I haven't seen anything that talks about the efficacy. Um, and this is just a prediction, but it's not based on anything in this article, um, I would think the hope would be that the efficacy of this uh, shot would be at least as good as the efficacy of the Omic- against the Omicron variant from the previous one. So, I mean, I, I would imagine, uh, let's be clear again, none of the recent shots have been that effective against infection. So I think the likelihood that it prevents infection Is low, And we've been told that from the beginning, from every virologist, epidemiologist, immunologist that we've had on the show, we kind of got greedy with the alpha variant when those vaccines just happened to work against infection. I'm not, I don't have an expectation against infection.
2: And you're drawing the distinction between infection and severe illness, basically.
3: Yes, 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 I am. And also something we even talked about last week on the show, especially around the ability of someone to spread the disease conditional on they've gotten it. That's something I don't have. I personally don't have much of an expectation that this new variant is going to. against.
1: I mean, I think there's a couple of things in play here that might be worth kind of deconvolving just that. I mean, you know, you know, this is obviously to the extent that this new vaccine is kind of targeted towards the genetic code of this Omicron. You know, one of the reasons that we do not see as much efficacy against actual transmission of our original vaccines is that the virus itself has changed and you know uh, you know and and so there is at least some hope that you know an updated version of that vaccine that is targeted against more recent variants will actually affect not just you know the kind of severe outcomes but uh, but also transmission like the mm-hmm. counter argument of course is that you know we've also seen that it seems like kind of just sort of the action of covid has you know like to the extent that these new newer variants have kind of changed the nature of covid itself where it's like more of an upper respiratory or or whatever like the kind of action that takes within its body that i don't think you i mean yeah there's certain parts of kind of maybe the the you know the actual path of a covid infection that have changed as a result of variants and the vaccine you know whatever vaccine would develop would not necessarily like, uh, you know, give us that efficacy that we had with alpha back.
3: No, Shane, I don't know if this is all the data they have, but I'm reading an article here in Reuters now that talks, references the Moderna study. And again, we've talked about this on previous shows about, let's call it the indirect versus direct evidence. I'll just read what it says. The vaccine, which was given as a fourth dose in a trial that enrolled more than 800 people raised virus neutralizing antibodies by eightfold against Omicron. Okay. Now, Let's assume that that's true. That's an indirect measure of mm-hmm. what its effectiveness right. might end up being. Um and so I'm Maybe there are other numbers.
1: Yeah, and I mean again, you, you, even when we talk it's an indirect measure of this word effectiveness that we're using where you have to kind of be more precise about even what you define as effective. Again, you know, effectiveness at preventing long-term health, con- you know, like severe you know, kind of uh, severe symptoms versus effectiveness at actually, you know, preventing transmission to another person.
2: I'm curious about the eight times, eight times, what, eight times, what eight times without it or eight times compared to what the other vaccine would do, the generic vaccine would do. That would be a more interesting comparison, right? These are one, this, these are bench studies. So this is, this is, this is in some lab but the, it'd be nice to know how much more effective these are than what else is available as opposed to just what it does to the antibody response. I'm also curious how quickly we expect something else to emerge. I know this is just speculation, right? But I mean, B5 has taken over the world for for a while now. It's had a good long run longer than the other ones, it seems to me. Um, but the course of these things is that a new variant will emerge and if it's close, if it's B4 to B5, then that's not that big a deal. But if it's an entirely different branch, then we're going to be off running for another another variation in our vaccine soon. Yeah,
1: you know I, know I mean, to- this is kind of, this is naive, kind of, I, I think, evolutionary theory here. But is it the case that, like, you know, the the, the, the better we target, you know, whatever current variant is dominant... You know, I mean, obviously that has great, great kind of benefits at the population level, but it also induces a selection pressure on COVID, like a greater selection pressure on COVID to evolve away from whatever we're currently doing against it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 and again, I don't know, again, we need an evolutionary biologist to kind of, uh, you know, I'm making a lot of kind of statements about that being the dominant form of selection as opposed to kind of more neutral selection of it just kind of randomly changing etc so i I don't know that that's true but you know that i feel like that that could be in play
2: okay so we've got that coming down the pike uk approved presumably the u.s um approval process is underway i haven't heard any update that on a little while what else do we know that we know that the cdc backed off of their quarantine suggestions um The I don't know how many how many organizations were following those guidelines at this point, but it is a substantive change from the CDC.
3: I think its biggest impact will probably be on uh, teachers and schools. Right. And so now if you know, a child has a positive test, then, you know, previously everyone exposed to him or her needed to be tested. and then uh, potentially quarantine regardless of the outcome of the test. And so I think there'll be less school level disruptions. Now, mm-hmm. of course, my concern is that uh, people won't get tested and people will choose not to report symptoms uh, because there is no mandate on the part of the school to require anyone to do so.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: Right. So that would be the only concern.
2: Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the desk. Eric is doing a good job of keeping tally every week, kind of giving us an update on and it. And the last few weeks has been just a pretty steady tick up. What do we make of that?
3: Well, I mean, I'm just trying to think of this. And Let's start with the macro perspective, then we can get micro. So deaths are back up to about 411 a day on a seven day average. They were actually a little bit higher earlier this week, up to about 430 to 450. And you say, well, you know, it's a modest difference. No, it's actually not a modest difference. It's a 40% increase over the low point. And then when you now actually think about you know, let's say you just do it at a macro level, let's imagine the yearly death rate, sorry, the daily death rate was 290 versus 410. that's 120 times 365, which is another 45,000 deaths a year. So besides that being a large number, any number of deaths is, a, is obviously a tra- is a tragedy. Um, that's like adding the number of deaths for an average flu season, adding. that's not the number that's adding that takes us from 100,000 deaths a year to like 145 to 150,000 deaths a year so my view is in my view we're starting to creep back to a point where you know if you start if we get back to a point where there's hundreds of thousands of deaths a year let's say more than 500 deaths a day i think something's going to have to happen i mean that's not a flu like level that's a heavy multiple of a flu-like level. And I didn't say quarantines. I'm not saying lockdown. I'm not saying any of those things. But, you know, could there be, could companies start taking more actions? Could public places start taking more actions? Could some sort of mass requirements start to come back? I I, I think you could. I don't think we're, let me just say the following. I'll say it this way. There's another 40% increase from where we are now. I think a lot of people are something's going to have to change.
2: So a couple of things. One, I, I don't well, one, I'm just kind of fundamentally cynical about the world being ready to respond in any way. I think the world's kind of worn out, most of the world is anyway, for better or worse. Yeah. But but I it's you're 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 making a very reasonable argument. I just don't know whether it's possible or whether the world is still responsive in that way. Two considerations they go in opposite directions. One, we're seeing this rise over the course of the summer, which is not the time where we've seen things go up. And what's going to happen as we go into cooler weather, people are more indoors and schools back underway. So all those factors would suggest that we have more of a rise in front of us. However, on the other side, when do the potential candidates for death, which tend to be older, unvaccinated, co-symptomatic, when do those get played out? When do we burn through all the candidates? But because we have had so many, I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean if there's a sincere question, we should have some kind of model that tells us the pool of most vulnerable is certainly shrinking for a number of reasons. Maybe we're not burning through them as fast as it seems we are, but at some point that has to reduce the increase in this thing just because there's fewer candidates.
3: I, I think that's right, but I maybe Shane has a comment on this too. My just one second comment is I don't think we're burning through them and, I, and this, I mean this in a tragic way, as I said, I don't think we're burning through them as fast as we all think we're burning through them. I think the death rate due to COVID is still low. Remember, it was at best, it was at the highest, it was maybe 2% of those people that in severe cases. So that still leaves, you know, if you think, I don't know, 20 million people, 10%, let's say 30 million people of the US population that might be in the high risk category. And, you know, we know we've had a little over a million deaths. That still leaves a very large group of people where if you take okay. still a big end times a small probability is going to lead to still a significant number okay. of deaths.
2: OK, good back of the envelope, Shane.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Eric's right. I think, you know, you're talking about flipping a very low, thankfully, very low probability coin, even for the people at the higher risk. end. and you're just you know, you're not going to exhaust those coin flips like in any kind of. You know, like certainly not like that. I don't think that's going to become a big part of the COVID dynamics. Is somehow going to be asymptoting at like n- not having enough opportunities. What what I um, what I, I, I think sorry. I, ahead, I'll, I'll just sort of like a kind of a general observation, just sort of about like what I see is the trends in COVID. Right, like it seems like one thing that I think argues against society or would might prevent more of a societal response is I, I, I kind of feel like, unlike you know the first with the ways of COVID that we've seen in the past, to the extent that we're even in like a COVID wave or COVID increase, it seems to be more this kind of, you know, slow boil up to a higher level as opposed to these big spikes, highly localized specific areas where action A would be, you know, where action might be spurred more, more regularly. I mean, I feel like a big spike in like localized areas is where you might actually get some kind of, you know, huh. mandate or some action that's action fair taken and where it would be most effective. And whereas, if we're sort of seeing this kind of like slow boil, you know, does the lobster even notice type of thing? You know, yeah. with the slow, slowly increasing
3: temperature. I think Shane, what we, just... we may also see, which is likely, I'm hoping we see an increased investment now in therapeutics because I think at some point we may just realize that, you know, lockdowns aren't going to happen, mass mandates aren't going to happen again. But if we took the same amount of or some fraction of the money assigned to vaccines and applied them to therapeutics now, that might actually be the longer run play that you see happening over the next couple of years.
2: On that point, have we seen a more recent, more definitive study on Pax slowly? Because there's been so much anecdotal talk about this kickback mechanism, the Paxlovid knocks things down for some period of time. But then once you roll off the five days or whatever it is that you do, you get it, you get, it, it comes back and I, it's just anecdotes. And so I'm, I'm hesitant to, to say this is symptomatic of Paxlovid, but by this point, we should have the study that tells us whether that's true or not. Right. And that's been the most supposedly revolutionary therapeutic out there. All right. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a very good point by Eric that that's the direction. I mean, especially if the world continues to just say, okay, we're going back to our lives, which at some level is understandable, then we're going to have to be heavier. On well,
3: here's that. the data just quickly. Here's the data we have here um, on a study of uh, two, about 2,000 people, 1,039 in the Paxlovid group, randomized control trial, 1,039 in the Paxlovid group, 1,046 in the placebo group. Hospitalization or death through 28 days, uh, Paxlovid was 0.8 percent, so less, a little less than one percent, and the placebo group was uh, 6.3 percent. So that's a ratio of about eight to one, nine to one. And so, um, and again, just to let you know, of those mortality, zero in the Paxlovid group, 1.1 percent in the placebo group. And this wow. was a randomized controlled trial study that was done.
2: And pretty well powered, it sounds like. So,
3: um, yeah, it's got 88% effectiveness with a 95% confidence interval between 75% and 94%. Okay.
1: That's the most precise thing we've had coming out of COVID <laughs> so far, precise yeah. sounding thing, at least. It seems like we, part- ought to, yeah.
2: we ought to have that available. So, a heck of a job digging that up real quickly, Eric. And I think an answer definitively don't worry about the blowback thing. You just, if you need it, go get it, and it's going to be more effective. On, on average. All right, guys, why don't we wrap COVID there? And let's just make a real quick note that we're going to begin to pivot away from a Q1 that's focused on COVID. We are going to at least try to stay with some of these challenging statistical questions of public importance in Q1, just a broader variety of them than just COVID. We're up for your suggestions, listeners. We're up for any, any topics you think might be especially helpful. Um, and we're also up for your suggestions for the show more generally as we pivot away from what we've been doing for the last two and a half years. We've got a couple of shows coming up. We've got one on the firefighting folks we talked to, Moneyball for Fire out in the West. It's that time of year. We have another show coming up on a statistical paper about alcohol and health. A big paper came out a couple of months ago on a topic that is relevant to many of our lives. Those are two that are in the queue and we're open to more suggestions if you have some. All right, guys, that's been Q1. We've got three more quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into Q2 now. This is Cade Massey hosting with Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. Heidi Winer's away. He's going to be back even in this show. He's coming back for Q4. You guys can jump in. We love it when you do reach out to us on Twitter at WMoneyball is our handle there at WMoneyball. Give us suggestions, criticism, praise, whatever you got. We'd love to hear from you. Our DMs are open there as well. If you want to reach out more privately or more substantively, feel free to hit us up on Twitter that way. We also have a mailbag of sorts via email, Wharton.upen.edu is our address, Wharton.upen.edu We love hearing from you. We read everything you send us. We get as much of it as we can on the air, but we read everything you send us, good, bad, or otherwise. Please do keep on reaching out. All right, we've got mostly an open topics quarter. We'll do the same in Q3 as we shift back to sports analytics now. But we're going to start with Daniel Popper. Daniel is a writer at The Athletic. He covers the Los Angeles Chargers. Before that, he covered the Jags. And before that, he was in New York with the New York Daily News covering the Jets. But he's with the Chargers now, and he wrote a spectacular article. Came out yesterday, August 15th and it's just one of the best things i'd seen in a long time we sent it around everybody was enthusiastic about it so we thought what the heck let's grab daniel and just talk about his article daniel welcome to wharton moneyball thanks for having me guys delighted to have you you're out at camp right now right the chargers they're hosting the cowboys not only are they going to play this weekend they're going to practice together for a couple days what's the mood out there with with the chargers
4: yeah, a lot of excitement. So, yeah, the Cowboys are coming tomorrow, Wednesday, for the first of two joint practices. And we'll get to see some starters against starters. You know, in these preseason games, most coaches are, are, are you know, benching, sitting their, their top players to avoid injury. So, you know, these two practices will be an opportunity to see, you know, best against best. Dak Prescott, uh, Micah Parsons for the Cowboys, you know, we'll see Justin Herbert, Rashawn Slater, their left tackle. So some good competition out here um and uh yeah just really excited to see some some fresh faces out here because the chargers have been going up against themselves now for 14 days so they're looking for some uh other people to compete against as they would say
2: well i was going to ask you that i know for a fan it's fun to get another team through there how does it how do the players and coaches feel about having another team to practice against right it's not that it's not the game but they're going to be practicing against them for a couple days
4: yeah, the coaches that I've talked to really believe that these joint practices are more valuable than the preseason games, um, just because you can you can really control a bunch of different variables and, you know, isolate guys in one-on-one situations um, to sort of, you know, get a really good evaluation of players that are competing for roles and see where your players are at. Um, okay. So they're really excited. Yeah, so they love these joint practices, um, and they're going to get a lot of really important evaluation done here over these next two days for some key position battles on the roster. Mm-hmm.
3: One of the things I I think about when I think of the Chargers now, I saw one of Justin Herbert's first games. Maybe it was the second or third game. I'm a Buccaneers fan. It was Chargers at Bucks. Am I safe? Is it safe to say in your mind, Daniel, that right now they wouldn't trade Justin Herbert for any? Given his age, his trajectory so far, his uh, accomplishments already, that they wouldn't trade him for any other player in the NFL right now.
4: Yeah, 100%. I mean, and you can make an argument that he's the most valuable player in the NFL based on contract because the most valuable thing you can have as an NFL team is a star quarterback on a rookie deal. So it's basically him or Joe Burrow are the most valuable assets in the NFL. And, you know, you pick your take your pick there. I think the Chargers love Justin Herbert. I think the Bengals really love Joe Burrow. And I don't think either of those teams would trade, you know, those assets.
2: Do, do Given that that is such a valuable asset and given that it's a short-lived one, How much pressure do you think the Chargers are feeling right now to take it to strike while they do have excess funds since Herbert is cheap as much cheaper than he will be in a couple of years?
4: A whole lot cheaper. Yeah, he's going to be at least a half a billion dollar quarterback. Um, Yeah, I mean, there is a ton of pressure publicly. They would never tell you that there's more pressure than a given season. But what I usually do is I follow the money and they spent more money this offseason than I've ever seen them spend. You could go back to the trade they made for Khalil Mack, they converted some of his base salary into signing bonus. And that's 13 and dollars that you got to come up with up front. Um, that's not a trade they usually make because they're not looking to pay more up front than they have to, you know, and then they spent heavily in free agency. A lot of that is controlled by the cap. But again, you're paying all these big signing signing bonuses, whether it's JC Jackson, the cornerback that they signed, it's a 30 plus million dollar signing bonus. Sebastian Joseph Day, a defensive lineman that they gave, you know, eight, nine million dollar signing bonus. So you can go down the list that the money tells you that they feel a lot of pressure to win in this window with Justin Herbert. Um, and um, I think they, they feel really good about the roster that they've built this offseason, particularly on defense.
2: Well, pressure is pressure's one way to frame it. Op- opportunity is another way to frame it. They have they have the excess funds right now that they won't have. And so why not try to strike while the iron hot? They've got a tough division out there. But yeah, that's
3: what I was going to ask about. What's the perception of the division? I mean, oh, my. Come on. This has got to be top. This has got to be one of the toughest divisions we've seen top to bottom. And I, I don't remember the last time I saw a division that was from top to bottom. Maybe the NFC West recently had a very good top to bottom. But what's Daniel, what are you guys hearing?
4: Yeah, it's I think it's the best division in football. And for me, I always start with the quarterbacks like that's you know, you can talk about other positions, but you don't win in the NFL unless you have a really good quarterback. And the quarterbacks in this division are out of this world. You have Justin Herbert. Patrick Mahomes, Russell Wilson, and Derek Carr, who I think is probably the most underrated quarterback in the league. Um, I watch him a lot because the Chargers play him twice a year, and the guy just makes plays, um, particularly in key moments, and I think he's underrated in terms of getting outside the pocket, um, in terms of making plays with his legs and off script. You have four of the top 12 quarterbacks in the league in one division, and when teams are preparing, that's where it always starts in the preparation is what quarterback are we going up against and how do we take away what he does best? It's hard to do in this division.
2: (laughs) So, so, Daniel, let's talk a little bit about the article. The article, again, on, on The Athletic um, came out yesterday. The title's Chargers' Brandon Staley, their head coach, the math mindset behind NFL's most aggressive coach. So one of my questions is, well, where did this article come from? And when you finished it, when you turned it in, how did you feel about it relative to other articles? Am I just so enthusiastic because I'm like the perfect audience for this thing? I'm like, of course, I'm going to like it. Or is it, do you think, an unusually interesting and good article? No, know you're biased, but you write a lot of articles. How does this compare to the others?
4: I felt relief when I finally turned it in. That's usually how you feel when you finally finish a story like this. I mean, to be fully transparent, it was like a 10-month process. Oh my, Because... Gosh. Early on last season, you know, I obviously noticed a big change in how the Chargers were making decisions from Anthony Lynn to Brandon Staley. I knew that they were going to be more aggressive and lean more into win probability modeling, but I didn't expect the change to be um, as big as it was. And so early on in the season, they had a stretch of three games, week three, week four and week five, where they were going for it and they converted seven of their eight fourth downs and they won three games pretty much as a direct result of how aggressive they were being on fourth down. And, you know, as a reporter, you see a trend and the like goes on your head and you say, okay, this is a story that I really wanted to write. So I approached, you know, the Chargers about writing it. How can we make this work? And, you know, they didn't want to write it until after the season. So then it was checking back after the season was over. And then it was months of building relationships and getting them to a point where they trusted me to, you know, reveal a decent amount behind the scenes of what they're doing. And so, after 10 months of working on it and thinking about the story, you know, turning it in, I was relieved. Um, and to be fully honest with you, when I turned in the first version, I thought it was one of the worst things I'd ever written. And then, <laughs> but that's because I stayed up until, you know, four thirty in the morning writing it because, you know, I'm kind of a night owl. And when I start working on something, I kind of just have to work right through it and finish it. Um, and then my editor got back to me in the morning. He's like, wow, this is really good. And I went back and read it again. And I was like, all right, this has a shot to be, to be pretty, pretty good. But when it published, I was just relieved because the process was took so long. It's like an entire year of my life.
2: <laughs> well, it it shows. There's it's a substantive piece. It's long, it's substantive, there's lots of ins and outs, there's tons of great quotes. And the time you got from Staley is remarkable. And the the transparency he yeah. gives is remarkable. I'm curious about that piece of it. Oh, so just maybe we should talk about the the gist of the article for a moment. What, what do you take away from this? What do you think is important for people to know about Staley and the Chargers as a result of this?
4: So the, the, the main message that I think people should take away is that, you know, more information is better when making decisions. And that's really what this comes down to for Brandon Staley. It's not that he wants to be the super aggressive fourth down coach or he wants to be this analytics coach or math coach. He just wants as much information as possible to make his decisions. And from a number of different resources that includes his experience as a football coach and includes the chargers football research department. And that's really where this all starts. And the other message is is a little bit broader and less related specifically to the chargers. Um, You know, I think people do a poor job of framing what analytics actually means in sports. And it's turned into this buzzword, this loaded buzzword and people don't really discuss what it actually is, which is just additional information. And you, know, you can use a lot of different analogies. The one I use in here was like, you know, in, you're on who wants to be a millionaire and you have a million dollar question and you have a phone a friend lifeline available. Like, are you just not going to use that? Or are you going to use that because you want more information to make that really important decision? Or if you're on a blackjack table, are you going to look at the chart that tells you how to beat the house before you go and play blackjack? or Are you just going to ignore that additional information? And I think those analogies sort of point to what Staley's thought process is and how we should talk about analytics in sports which is just more information it's not mm-hmm. it's not making these decisions strictly based off what mathematical models are telling you it's just using that information to inform the decisions they're making really important decisions particularly in football
2: it's it's funny you think about the politics if the if it wasn't the analytics group over across the hall but it was the information group <laughs> right Maybe we should should listen to others information group, Eric.
3: Yeah, I was just going to say that the thing that impressed me the most about the article was your discussion of the default is we're going to use this information source. And I'll let you know in immediately in real time if we're not. That's the part that impressed me the most, but they
2: how- we, more we precise in that the default was if they set for any given series, they say on fourth down, if we're within a certain number of yards, depending on the circumstances, right, we're, we're going, going for it. We're going for it. So the default is that we are going in this situation unless I say no. So that I mean, that's it, it, it takes away the yes, no, it's not a two way go. It's a one way go. I have to back off of that. My default is if we're in that condition. We're going for it.
3: I also thought maybe, Daniel, you could besides that part of the article, I also thought about the he didn't want too many speak- people speaking at once. In other words, you have a split second to make a decision. And that maybe also the probability of being successful would also be increased by, you know, we're going to go for it in this situation and you can prepare for it. I'm taking away the ambiguity. I'm taking away. You're rushing up to the line of scrimmage because you don't know what the hell is going to happen. I, that's how I also read it. But I'd love your thoughts.
4: Yeah, for for Staley, it was like a bigger picture than that. It wasn't just focused on fourth downs. It was how do we streamline our operation across the board, internally, on the field? And he would point to specific examples of game management that also point to how streamlined this all was. Like, you see quarterbacks all the time on the field getting frustrated, and they got to bang a timeout real quick uh, because the play clock is running down because they aren't streamlined in their communication the chargers were in the bottom five in the league in terms of wasted timeouts based on parameters that 538 used in a study. And Staley would point to that. You look at their delay of game penalties. They had three of them the entire year and all of them were intentional to gain more yards to either punt the ball away or to, to kick a field goal. And so they didn't have any of these wow. operational issues, that stuff that actually got cut from the story. Cause it didn't really flow, but I thought that stuff was really fascinating because for him, when the analytics department of the chargers did their year in review, it was looking at the operation as a whole including two-minute situations, all of these different situations that factor into what they view as game management. It wasn't just fourth downs because they wanted to be successful across the board in terms of how streamlined this, one's, this was and avoiding any sorts of those mistakes that a lot of teams fall into. And the margins are so thin that if you do make one mistake in a key moment where you have to bang a timeout or you have some sort of operational penalty, that's the difference between winning and losing. And eliminating those mistakes was a priority for Staley. And that's where all of this stems from, specifically with the fourth downs and then on a broader level.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a, a little bit more about Staley? Anything else that didn't come through in the article from a distance to nerds like us? He seems amazing and not even just the nerd side of it, just the way he's 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 even in a press conference. He seems to be more transparent. He seems to be more direct. It's not as much coach speak. I mean, everything I've frankly, everything I've ever heard from the guy, I'm like, son of a bitch, this is a this is a this is a coach I could get by.
4: Yeah. I mean, he's, he's immensely intelligent. Like that's, that's where it starts. Like his ability to not only process information, but distill it in a way that's very digestible is a real gift. And, and I think that's what makes him a great coach. And he comes from a family of teachers. Um, his mother was a sixth grade English teacher. Uh, his father taught before um, moving on. He taught fourth grade before moving on to uh, a second career. And so that comes through in how he talks. And How he distills information. And a lot of this stuff is really complex. Like, I don't think you could have written a story with another coach. And it's not a transparency thing, it's just the ability to articulate these ideas in a way that right. everyone can understand. Right. That made my job really easily because easy because I've been trying to write about this stuff for a long time. I do an okay job of it, but without the quotes in this story that distill these complex ideas into really easily digestible nuggets, the story wouldn't be possible. So I think that's why you know Staley is so unique, it's just You know, the teacher in him, he's always teaching when he's with his players. He's teaching when he's with the media, he's teaching because he really wants to provide information to everybody because he feels like it's going to create a more educated fan base and ultimately a fan base that
2: roots harder for the team. It's interesting. He's only 39 years old. I mean, he's got this kind of teacher orientation as a as a young man. Listen, Daniel, thanks for jumping on us so quickly. Uh, Keep up the good work, man. We love this article. We're pulling for the Chargers anyway. This just pushes us a little further along. But we we, uh, we appreciate what you're doing out there. Good luck with the rest of it.
4: Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, guys.
2: You bet. Daniel Popper, staff writer for The Athletic, covering the Chargers out there on training camp right now, watching the Cowboys come in, looking for a few days of practices and then an exhibition game this weekend. Thank you, Daniel. All right, gentlemen, uh, any reflections on that? we have got a quick interview there, a spectacular article. One more time, we'll pimp it. This is uh, Popper's article from yesterday on The Athletic about brandon staley and especially about how aggressive he was and why with the fourth down. what are your reactions to the article or to popper or to the issue in general
1: i mean I, honestly it was a fantastic article and i do like kind of like um yeah I, I i guess the kind of you know the attempt to sort of frame this you know frame analytics not again you know not as kind of somehow contrary to whatever convention, but just as kind of complementary, sort of like information for decision making. I mean, I will kind of, I'll push back a little bit, I guess, on this concept of like, yeah, you know, I think the analogy for sort of the lifeline kind of like thing, I, I, I'm going to push back on because it's, you know, of course, if you get to the final round and you have absolutely no idea what to say or what, what to guess, more information is better than your maximal uncertainty state. Right. But that's not right. Really, you know, when, 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 you know, like, you know, somebody like Bill Belichick, to take another example, it's not like he's actively trying to, out of tradition, ignore appropriate information. He's, you know, if he makes a non-analytical decision, at least in his mind, it is because whatever analytical prediction is not appropriate or not relevant or it's not taking into account the context that he wants to take into account with that. Particular decision. And so I think it's sort of like the way in which you kind of turn down extra information or extra, uh, you know, an extra analysis is if you felt it was either inappropriate or somehow biased against the decision, you know, biased in some way. And so it's sort of like not all information is like, you know, we, we tend to use the word information or analysis as fact, right? When in fact, you know, I mean, they're, they're, you know, an, a, a, an analysis that's inappropriate actually can undermine. Would be actually worse than not using any any extra information at all
3: well, also one thing Daniel mentioned, which I thought was interesting, was you know two aspects at least was number one by including this extra information, imagine it slows the play down in the tempo and now you get a penalty called mm-hmm. so that 's an unintended cost of if you 'd like processing this extra information that 's number one and second let's imagine you have a coach that is two or three steps thinking ahead you know that we always talk about this like the complexity Mm -hmm. of thinking and the coach says by bringing this information in it's going to lead to such uncertainty or i'm looking three or four steps ahead and maybe whatever model you run haven't and i see what's happening on the field and the assumptions you're making in this model don't quite meet that so i could see where a coach could legitimately say i hear what this information is but actually i'm not it now and this explains what you said Shane and here's why he doesn't have to explain himself or herself but they're just not going to use that information
1: yeah no and I mean they do kind of I mean I thought a fascinating part of the article that we kind of discussed uh, it was you know that he kind of like they they allow for that, you know, I mean, of course, like, you know, Staley had, you know, I, I kind of like, you know, like the kind of idea of, you know, that using the information and using the, you know, kind of basing your decision ba- uh, based on the kind of analytics is the default. But of course, you can kind of, you know, he's still got, you know, he's still got the executive decision to say, like, no, th- somehow the, this context, right. I feel like, is different enough from what I know those analytics are based on. Or as you sort of said, like, you know, that this is, you know on average the right decision, but because of the way I want to kind of set the game flow or pace of play or whatever type of other kind of like contextual sort of situation, the context of the situation, he can kind of overrule that basically. So I mean, I kind of I I agree again with the sort of framing of like, of course, you'd want to incorporate analytics as the default, but there are going to be situations where it's not like it's always going to lead to a better decision.
3: Yeah, and I I agree with you. And the other thing that, that was interesting to me about the article was this limit to like six people on the headset now the reason i like that also besides it leads to faster play calling and everything else is you're now asking those people to be experts in interpreting information Mm -hmm. not everybody i don't need a staff of 50 people doing it I'm asking six people to be experts in interpreting information, using analytics. And you know what, when we have to make a decision, we can make it quickly. And we all know the basis of it. So I like that part of the article as well, when in some sense, by not having it a what, you know, too many cooks spoiling the broth by not having 20 decision makers in real time, there's a lot of benefit to that as well.
1: It makes me wonder what the distribution of decision like people on headsets is across teams or whatever what, whatever right I you know it's, it, it's right I you
3: mean, would have thought six seems like a lot or at least no, a I mean, that, and over, and that, that always sounds like that's it yeah. just six
1: i mean yeah you know i mean we uh you know we you the three of us when we get enthused about something or three or four of us when we get enthused about something summer concert you know it's hard not to talk over each other even yeah six sounds like a lot of cooks and so yeah expanding that to like you know like essentially a lecture hall of 20 people that all can pipe in yeah i mean it it Honestly, I'd love to just kind of hear what those that that entire kind of decision making real real time decision making process, kind of how that how that works in real
3: time would be, you know, that's probably unknowable, of course, but um, it's fascinating. What would also be interesting to look at, I'm not sure how you'd run this counterfactual would be. So how do players on the field react differently when they know for a fact like they have to know as well? It's not like they don't have a chart that says this like, you know. Uh, Justin, if we don't make it on this play, by the way, we're going for it on the next play. As far as we know, that has an endogenous impact on the success of the previous play and yeah. on the players who say, you know what, um, I don't have to go for the home run play here because I know if I just gain five yards on this third and six, even if it's at our own 25 yard line, we're going for it. And I might be able to get five yards with higher certainty and therefore. This puts him in a totally different position.
2: If if y'all remember, this is something we talked about with Kevin Kelly a few years ago. So Kelly was a longtime coach at Pulaski Academy in Arkansas, one of the zillion state championships. And he was the one who had the philosophy of never punt. And we had him on and then a great conversation with him a number of years ago. He went, by the way, he went to Presbyterian University, Presbyterian College, Presbyterian College in South Carolina So he bumped up to college. He had a bad year and he resigned. So it didn't work out as well with that squad last year, but still in he he was like the, the water carrier for this concept, but I'm bringing him up because he talked about exactly this issue that Eric is raising. He believed it made a difference in the player mindset and he tried to cultivate that mindset in some of the same ways that Staley talks about in this article, it's like, it's not just about the strategy of, Oh, I get an extra down. It is, I've got four downs and that changes right. everything. Oh, and by the way, they have to be ready for these moments where it doesn't work out. They have to know that's just part of how we do things. And we're going to take the portfolio and overall we're going to be better off, but they have to be ready for that. That mindset. Yeah. Kelly, talk, Kelly talked a lot about that in our interview.
1: Yeah, no. And that kind of the implicit signal to the players that he, trust them to execute right i mean right. one of the one of the ways that you can avoid doing kind of risky moves like going for the fourth down is because you truly believe that it's not worth the benefit even if you are confident in your players but it also you know i mean there's a con you know there's there's also a signal there that you you may be part of the, that evaluation and not go for it is that you don't trust the players to execute you know the play that you you have designed for well, that moment
3: one other thing shane that i thought about when um when he was speaking, when Daniel was speaking was, you know, imagine you're a defensive player and you're going up against the Chargers and it's third and six from your own, let's say they're at their own 30. And the defensive player, how are they trained against every other team in the NFL? They're trained, give them five yards because we're going to stop them. Yeah, well, you give him five yards against the Chargers, it's fourth and one. So what you're also, you could argue, maybe this is a second-order effect, but other teams are trained to give you exactly, and even the article talks about playing on their own terms, the other players are being trained to give you exactly what the Chargers want, which is five free yards, and now it's fourth and one. That's a win.
2: It's good, Eric. And and the general version of that is they're playing a different strategy than other teams are right. And it's more unique. And so teams have less preparation for it. They're exactly. That's got to be advantageous as well. Obviously, the whole league has gone more in that direction. It just seems to be that Staley has taken it a little bit further than the others. But it seems like that's the trend. It seems like we're going to see more um, in that direction. But I have to say the article opens with Staley thumbing through The Undoing Project, which is Michael Lewis' book about Kahneman and Tversky. Yeah,
3: that's what I was surprised about, by the way, because I've read uh, both. Obviously, I've read Moneyball, but I've read uh, The Undoing Project. When, he, when I was reading the article, I was expecting him to refer to, I'm reaching over for Moneyball. And no, he was actually <laughs> reaching over for the book about Kahneman and Tversky.
2: It's a it's a spectacular book um, as well. And of course, Michael Lewis mostly writes spectacular books. You can, but,
1: yeah, you could have a whole shelf of books he could appropriately be reaching for. He reached over for the Blind Side.
2: You know, <laughs> that's even nine, more. I mean, you know, even more on point. Yeah. Well, it, kahneman and Tversky, as as some listeners know, are the are pretty much the Godfathers of the judgment and decision-making field, the academic field of judgment and decision-making, which is my home, my home field. And so they, they had me from the first paragraph and then he came back to it again. It was Staley's literally thumbing through this book, coming up with various favorite lines from the book, which is just, just remarkable. Okay, guys, let's talk about the NFL more generally. We are rolling into the second, second week of preseason. Um, college football is just a few weeks away now from their open. Any any other thoughts around the football world? Anything jump out to you around the football world?
1: Well, I mean, I, one thing that I kind of picked up, I was listening, I think, to the PFF podcast the other day, and, you know, they, they made a big point about how uh, one of the kind of interesting things to kind of I'd look forward to this season or to kind of anticipate is that I, I think we're going to see a lot of kind of information about, you know, kind of top-wide receivers. I mean, that's obviously a topic that, you know, has existed for football for a while, but in this particular off season, I think we've seen a lot more kind of movement of sort of number one receivers than one usually sees in an off season. And, and I mean, you know, I can name four off the top of my head, you know, Tyreek Hill at the Chiefs, Devontae Adams leaving the Packers, A.J. Brown being traded to the Eagles, Amari Cooper being traded away from the Cowboys. And so. The, you know, I, I think we're going to that. That's one sort of thing that I'll be kind of looking forward to like this season is sort of seeing how much, you know, again, a very contextual kind of thing, but how much a, a number
3: one wide receiver is missed. That's what I was going to say, Shane. You know, I think it's one of those things where obviously, you know, um, one, a one and a two, I think we're going to f- I think those teams are going to find out is very different than a two and a two. And I think if you don't have someone that can take the best cornerback on the other team either out of play or make him, you know, make you have to double team somebody, then you're stuck with a bunch of very good receivers. And I've seen a lot of very successful teams not win with that. Like, Eric, you need- I'm
2: going to push you a little bit because you, yeah. you wouldn't even, it wasn't quite a fair comparison, what you're saying. One and two is pretty clearly better than two and two. But what about one and three? Three versus two and two.
3: I think I'd rather have one and three versus two and two. I'm
2: cheating because I also listen sometimes to the PFF forecast podcast with our buddy Eager. And in one of the recent shows, they were talking very much about the value of that second, a good second receiver and studies that show it's not, especially when you get into the playoffs where you're playing against better teams, it's not the performance of the top receiver that separates teams it's the performance of the second receiver and it's precisely because it's it's your logic is just flipped around they are going to have the top teams are going to have a defensive back who can take out number one but they may not have two defensive backs if you've got a strong number two and, and so it's this it's this idea that this is i think what's going to be interesting we, the the league went kind of crazy for wide receivers this offseason but do they have the right story if pff is right the story isn't like go get that number one guy. The story is have a deeper stock of those guys, have a better number two guy. And and maybe we only see it in the playoffs. And so maybe it's too hard a sample to actually parse, but it's an interesting, it's it's going to be interesting to see how it, it bears out with these teams. that really went all in on one guy.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it illustrates the complexity of football. Cause I could then counter argue, well, that's more about like the, your depth. Diff, the, you know, if the team you're playing Yes, back, it's, relative. it's, it's back, relative
2: that's right then, that's right you
1: know then i mean it's almost like you know the, the strategies change depending on what the configuration of top versus two versus three defensive backs are as well and you know it, so it's it, it's it is obviously kind of a very complex dynamic in general but uh but yeah i mean i'm kind of in, uh, certainly i'm intrigued by these and I, you know again there's also kind of like the fact that we you know again have to acknowledge in football that the whole your entire team has a cap on it. Right. And so, you know, somebody like Tyreek Hill is certainly going to be missed by Kansas city, but if they had tried, you know, if they'd had to sign Tyreek Hill for what he ended up getting from Miami, I'm not sure they'd be able to kind of look, construct the team around
3: him that would have that kind of depth that we've been talking. Look, about. let me tell you the nice thing about the NFL season. Unlike I'm on a rail a little bit, Kate, on the college season, where I, I, I already made <laughs> our prediction last week that I don't think there's that much uncertainty, but let's, before we get to that, In the pro season, are you telling – let's think about all the teams that did really well last season. Are you telling me there's no uncertainty with the Rams? Absolutely not. Matt Stafford's elbow's in trouble. There's uncertainty around the Rams. Are you telling me there's no uncertainty around the Bucs? I mean, there's uncertainty. Gronk retired. Tom Brady, who knows what's going on. The Chiefs, they lost Tyreek Hill. The Packers lost Devontae Adams. So it would not surprise me. And Shane already made his prediction that he thinks of the top teams. The Titans may not even make the playoffs. So all I'm commenting on is I see this as a very exciting NFL season because I think even if we study the top five or six teams from last year, there's no obvious favorite to me amongst those teams. And I think there's, Six to eight teams that could win the Super Bowl this year, and I may be underestimating those that that number.
2: I part part of what you're talking about is just NFL in general. Um, but but I mean, so for example, that yeah, every uh, year Nina Kimes coverage of her podcast with Barnwell this past week on the AFC North pointed out that the Bengals were four and 11 the previous year in 2021 going into last year. And the other three teams in their division were all expected to be serious playoff contenders, Super Bowl contenders. Twenty twenty one plays out, and Bengals are the only team of the four that make the playoffs, and they made the Super Bowl. That's from four to eleven in one of the toughest supposed divisions in the league to Super Bowl in one year. That's NFL. That doesn't happen in college football. So, I, fair, Eric, for sure. That's fair. But by the way, on the uncertainty in college football. The AP poll came out this week and I love the piece of Bill Connolly. Our buddy, Bill Connolly did a piece, you know, the poll, the only so much you can do with polls. Well, Bill found some interesting things to do with polls. He said like historically over the 50 or 60 years or whatever, they've been running this thing thing. You can say things like, well, you know, two of the top 10 are not going to end up in the top 25 and two teams are going to end up in the top 10 who weren't ranked at all. And the chance of the national champion coming from outside the top six is very low. So he goes through these kinds of things that you could say, have some statistical regularity, and he kind of goes from there. One of the points he makes, Eric, is yeah, yeah, a lot of consensus about those top three, clearly. Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State. But after that, it's pretty wide open, and there are four spots. Now, maybe you can't get excited about there only being one spot of interest in the playoffs, but history would say all three of those teams aren't going to make the playoffs, and there is at least one spot. Even ex-ante looks highly uncertain, and ex-post, it'll probably be more than one spot, but there's I, I agree. When you look at NFL versus college and maybe especially this year with the NFL, there's a lot more turnover and uncertainty and volatility.
3: 1.5 expected number of spots. There we go. They're free. There we go.
2: 1.5 expected. That sounds about right. OK, well, um, only a couple more weeks to go until we have more football to dive into um, your hopes on the Bucks, Eric. Where are they?
3: I'm very excited about the Bucks. Um, I think they're going to be a very, very good team. I hope Brady's heads on straight. I don't know what's going on right there, but, um, I'm excited about the receivers they've gotten. Uh, apparently, Julio Jones is looking. I mean, everyone's saying he's ripping it up. So I'm ex- very excited about the Bucks uh, this season coming up. And you know, they were one bad play away from you know having another great Tom Beatty comeback. I was at that Rams at Bucks game, and I'm going to tell you right there, they were one play away from again. I'll call it a Falcon-like Super Bowl comeback, and then they would have won the Super Bowl. Let's be honest; they beat oh, the Rams. They're course. winning the Super oh, we're Bowl. We're talking
2: about 2022, not 2021. We'll have more. They
3: said Brady's never looked better.
2: All right, guys, that's been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still got two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break.
0: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
2: on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to Q3, another open topics segment. Kate Massey hosting this quarter with Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, longtime collaborators here at Wharton Moneyball. Audie Weiner is out. Most of the week, he's going to slide in here for the interview in Q4 coming up shortly. Going to be a short segment to protect some time for that long Q4 interview. Guys, we have a lot of sports to cover. Mostly just going to pay attention to football. I mean, to ba- to <laughs> for you see? baseball. Baseball time of year. But I, I do want to note that Will Zalatoris got his first PGA win this weekend. And it's the first FedEx event. Eric was given a, a promotion to the FedEx event last week. It's a, the first of three. This is the end of season championship. And, but just as a tournament, it was Zalatoris' first as a PGA pro. He's been playing for two years. Not a big deal to go two years without a win. But for the fact that he has been neck and neck at the line in three of the last, whatever, eight majors, three of the last six majors. Um, and so it was, it was kind of expected and nice to see him get over the hump on that one of the top young players. And of course, he's one of the one of the guys pushing uh, the decade golf system of our of our friend Scott Fawcett. And so it's good to see him come. Along.
3: He also got over the line on an event where all the top players, minus the live guys that can't play, are playing. And right. So 120,
2: that's the, top 125. Right.
3: Right. Yeah, that's it. So, I mean, it's the strongest field and the mm-hmm. deepest field. And so it's an impressive win to get.
2: So that's only just if you're paying attention to golf, the this week is the top 70 and then the top 30 from that.
3: And just to remind everybody next year, they're switching to 70, 50, 30. So even more emphasis on the regular season of golf. Mm-hmm. And then also to remind everybody, this was a Tiger Woods, Justin Rose effect three years ago when Tiger Woods, uh, when they won the tour championship, but so just before he won the master's, but didn't win the FedEx. Justin Rose did that by getting up and down from a bunker. They decided to change things. Where Remember, this is that stupid system where the number one player after this next week starts at minus 10, and then it's minus 9, and then there are a bunch of guys that start at even par. So basically, if I'm 30th, I start 10 strokes behind, so I know who the winner is at the end of the FedEx. Eric,
2: uh, you're saying this in a a mocking way. But, but, but what alternative? You like the old way where you don't know who the winner is and the leaderboard is confusing?
3: No, you can have a winner of the tournament and you can have also whoever wins the final FedEx points. I have no problem with separating the two,
1: but mm-hmm. now- You just don't they're... like them as sort of a handicapping system on the
3: tournament. Correct. Let's mm-hmm. just have a winner of the top 30 and well, the separate is basically winner moving... for the season.
2: It's making the tournament go away and it's just all about the championship. If you just focus on it as the championship, it is, uh, isn't it more dramatic, interesting way to do it? I mean, it costs, it costs you yeah, a tournament. It you Yeah,
3: maybe I just have a question since you're, you're the guy for eight years, K okay, that's been pushing tournament design. Maybe it's the arbitrariness of this ten-stroke lead, and you know why does that? Why is that? And what really is how much excitement are you really putting? What's the chances that someone's really catching up? No, it's not right. just ten I mean, strokes. I, if I'm playing Shane Jensen, I can catch up ten strokes, but I got to catch up ten strokes or nine strokes or eight strokes or seven strokes on five, six or seven different guys. And you know, is that great? I've told us about this great article by George Caseller for years. You might as well be the equivalent of like 20 strokes back of one player being 10, 9, 8, 7, 6 strokes back of five different players. So it just takes uh-huh. one of them to beat you by or not lose to you by a certain number of strokes. So you're really 20 strokes back. You're not winning from 30th place.
1: So you're not against a handicapping system. You just don't believe that this particular handicapping system is well calibrated to kind of balance, sort of like giving an advantage, but not making, but allowing for like kind of. You know, I mean, right. I I mean, you know, a nice thing about most golf tournaments is everybody who starts, it has some chance of winning it.
3: Yep. What you just said. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Okay. Well, that there's an interesting, there's a fundamental tension there between running a tournament while also running a multi-week championship. And that's, I think the heart of the problem, but this Casella article you just mentioned, I don't think I remember you're mentioning it. So you translate, there's an equivalent, there's a one player gap equivalent to being behind a number of players
3: for correct. For a different it's gap. a great thought. Like you know, it's you're in fifth place, and you're in fifth place, but there's four people ahead of you. And so, how many effective, you know, wins or strokes are you behind if you had just been one player? It's a great metric. It's a great way of translating it. And I just made mm-hmm. up. I don't know the fact that the thirtieth player ten yeah, yeah, strokes right. back is twenty strokes back, but I wouldn't doubt it. And you're not beat. You're not losing to any pro. A top pro is not losing to another pro by twenty strokes in four rounds.
2: No. I'm always favorably disposed to Casella because of Casella and Berger, which was our first year PhD probability book, and awesome. I um, don't maybe that's cognitive dissonance. I think it's awesome because it was a brutal. Oh, thing. it's
1: it, no, it's a great book. It's one of the, like the top ten reasons to be, you know,
2: you <laughs> okay know, <laughs> to supportive Casella. of Casella. All right, no. all right, Eric, bring that one out more often. You say you? I don't. I don't remember you mentioning before. That's a great one. Okay, let's shift gears to baseball. I know there's lots going on in baseball right now. Get us updated on the key. Storylines in MLB right now.
1: Well, one that I kind of wanted to talk to, one that's kind of caught my eye is, is you know, kind of what's happening at what, what I consider the two top AL Cy Young candidates, which are are Justin Verlander at age 39, incredible, um, and Dylan Sees, who's like doing amazing things, you know, for the Chicago White Sox as well. And you know, we we kind of had like you know some discussion offline about kind of comparing the two, and. I think it's kind of an interesting thing because, you know, a lot of the kind of like things like you look at, like, like you know, strikeout rates and stuff like that would favor Dylan Cease. But Justin Verlander has been putting up just absolutely incredible numbers for Houston. And I think Justin Verlander is probably going to win um, because he's going to have a higher win total. And I know we kind of want to sort of we – don't, we don't like that, you know, necessarily in the analytics community because we don't kind of – think about wins as a pitcher kind of statistic because in most part, because when we think about, oh, pitchers wins, that's too much a function of the run support that the team gives them, et cetera. One way in which I do think wins is a pitcher statistic though. One thing that Justin Verlander is doing that is leading to a lot more of those wins is he has like an incredible number of, like incredibly low number of pitches per plate appearance. I had to kind of dig around to get this information, but You know, Justin Verlander this season is averaging less than three point five pitches per plate appearance. Wow, batters facing him.
2: It seems low to me, but I don't have. I'll give you. I'll give you some
1: context. I'll give you some context. Dylan Cease, who were you know the comparison is made, is at like four point two
3: pitches per. So that's a pretty big difference. Well, it is. I mean, Shane. Let's uh, let's think about it. Let's say you want to play. You want to pitch a complete game. Exactly. That's 20, that's 20 extra pitches it's on average. No, and I mean, this is why wins a are. Con- we, we talk about
1: wins. Oh, we don't you want to use wins to compare pitchers because it's not under the pitcher's control. This part is, you know, I mean, your run support's not under your control, but how deep you go in games uh-huh. is a product of how effective you are or how efficient you are batter to batter. And I feel like we don't talk about kind of pitches per plate appearance as much as we sort of should. Just to give you some more kind of historical kind of context how amazing Verlander's been for this! I looked it up for a few others. So Nolan Ryan career, though this is only for his late seasons because uh, we don't have pitches per plate appearance going back too far, is at four. And again, Justin oh. Verlander's at three point less than three point five this season. Pedro oh. Martinez three point eight five. Okay, Hershaw so three point eight two.
2: What are the what are the key drivers? One is you're throwing strikes clearly, but also maybe ground balls. You're putting yeah.
1: You're getting actually your ground balls. So it's sort of like so Dylan Cease, for example, has a way higher strikeout rate than Justin Verlander. But it takes but he's also got a way higher pop- walk rate. I mean, right. you, know, you know, You know, the guys that are getting lots of strikeouts are kind of you,
3: you know tending to go more deep into counts. Shane, I imagine that has to be also very. <sighs> uh, let me think about it. Um, the lower this is, this has to be very positively correlated with BABIP, right? Batting average yeah. and balls in play. So, in other words, when people are hitting the ball, they've got to be getting out because mm-hmm. that would just add more pitches. So, this Which is primarily a-
2: just means ground ball versus other things. That's the yeah. biggest distinction, right?
3: Uh, but it would I, be I, also uh, interesting to correlate this with things like exit velocity off the bat. Like maybe people just aren't hitting the ball as hard when Verlander pitches the ball too which would be another rationale for why. And by the way, his whip is much lower than ceases. I just looked at it. His whip is 0.86 and ceases is 1.12. Justin Verlander's whip is walk plus hits per inning pitch. Walk Mm -hmm. plus hits per inning pitch. If you have less than one, you're having a great season. Justin Verlander's is Mm 0.86. That is remarkably low. That means, you know, Guys aren't getting hits. Their batting average again in balls and play have to be very, very low for Verland. So
2: is this connected people. Maybe it goes back to the Jeff Passan article. I was pimping here four six weeks ago about the change in the game. And there, I think there was this sentiment that pitchers these days don't look for contact. And I hadn't really thought about that as a thing that, that, that traditionally pitchers were okay with contact if it wasn't good contact. And is there a generational thing here, Verlander being the old guy? Do we see this in this pitches per, per pitches per um plate appearance? Yeah, Is it yeah. going up in general with age as you get into this demographic, this generation? it's either strikeouts or nothing. That's just, you're just going for strikeouts. And so you don't know how to throw for contact. There was this, there was a reference to this in the past article Mm -hmm. and Verlander being the old guy makes me wonder if it was a, it's, it's a lost art and he still got it. He's one of the few guys who still has it.
1: I think it does. I mean, you know, I I always thought uh, Derek Lowe was this great sinker baller. I, I should go back and look at some of his numbers in this respect. He was this great sinker baller for, for the Red Sox. And I mean, he, he didn't strike a lot of guys out, but you know, and, he walked more guys than I would have liked him to, but you know, you, you, when you need a double play being kind of a ground ball pitcher is a tremendously helpful kind of thing to have. Um, the one thing I will kind of, you know, I mean, I, I'm glad that Eric brought up that this would be so closely linked to batting average of balls in play. That does tend to kind of have a lot of kind of, you know, that, that varies a lot, even it's noisy. within a player across season. So right. one thing I, I, I need to kind of dig more into sort of what people have been doing with pitches for plate appearance it could be it's it's a little bit it's it's you know it's obviously kind of a, a very direct measure of pitcher efficiency but it may not be it may be kind of a relatively high one. and it's worth noting that verlander career-wise is more up at like four pitches per plate appearance like this okay. season this season is an outlier even by his you know so it's possible you're standards.
2: suggesting it's possible that he's gotten lucky on batted balls on b- balls that's in right play. that's right um okay w- one question about verlander When's the MVP in 2011. If he wins it in 2022, how does that compare to the greatest spreads in time between MVPs?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't think he's going to win MVP with Aaron Judge out there and stuff like that. He, but I think he is, a, you know, I think he's the leader for Cy Young. And that still would represent a, a tremendous spread. Of, even if it's only the Cy Young that he ends up winning this year, that's still going to be a tremendous spread between Cy Young's.
2: Okay. Speaking of judge, what happened with the home run tally this past week? Well, he's still on pace.
3: Same, same old, same old. I mean, he's got 46 home runs, I believe with 46, 46 games to play. His (laughs) RBI
1: must be nose diving down that RBI pace, right? Nobody else is getting on pace.
2: Yeah, well, that's if they... Oh,
1: Shane's enjoying
3: himself. I mean, let me throw shade during the two weeks this season I've been able to. I mean... (laughs) No, there's some fair shade there. But again, what's interesting about uh, Judge is how consistent his pace has been. Yeah. So again, just quickly, if you think there's 46 to play, and he hits one-third of a home run per game, that gives him another 15, 16 home runs, that's 62. That's the pace he's been on. He's been on the 62 to 64 pace without going up much higher or going much lower. That's been his consistent pace. I don't think he'll make it to 60. I think he's going to get close high fifties for sure. Uh, again, unless as Shane said last week, he gets injured, but uh, he's, had and, it- I mean, I think
1: there'll be an interesting strategic question. Cause you kind of wonder near the end of the season. I mean, I, I anticipate the Yankees even with their kind of current dive will be, you know, kind of locked up the division sort of early. Do you start rest, you know, do you rest him basically? And 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 prevent him from maybe hitting some of these like home run records.
2: Man, I, I you know please for the enjoyment of baseball, let's not. Come on, he didn't even yeah. rest try let's him just, out.
3: Let's just have him hit me. eighteen in the next three games, and let's be done with this already. <laughs> <laughs> All right,
2: okay, guys, that has been a quick Q three. We still have Q four ahead of us. Come back and join us after the break.
0: You're listening to Wharton
2: Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Fourth quarter has become our interview segment in the time of COVID. One of our interview segments, our most reliable interview segment. We are delighted and lucky to welcome onto the show this week, Ron Yurko, longtime friend of the show, stalwart in the sports analytics community. On the frontier... Technically and always a good conversation. Our friend Ron, welcome back to Morton Moneyball.
5: Thanks for having me back on. I, I just want to say I do listen every week uh, and I've been thoroughly enjoying uh, both the discussions at the beginning about you know COVID and just because I mean it's constant, you know, getting also good resource and information from you guys, good processing of it. And then, of course, you know, the fun conversations in sports as well. But I've appreciated all the COVID content uh, throughout, you know, these past couple of years.
2: Well, that's good to hear. Um, That's good to hear. We we, we started out thinking it helped us, if nothing else. And then we got some positive feedback on it. And um, we've made a conscious choice on occasion over the last two and a half years to keep on doing it that way. And we're about to make a conscious choice to pivot away unless the world shifts dramatically. We're going to shift from doing COVID every week. But we we do think we're going to hang on to kind of the public policy, public health, public issues, statistically grounded, public controversies theme. And we may hang on to doing something in the first quarter that has that flavor. You know, we did monkeypox last week, for
5: example. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I appreciate it from the sense of, I'm getting the perspective of people that speak my language as statisticians talking to people that are, you know, in the space, whether it be uh, public policy wise or, um, you know, the, the details about monkeypox, you know, that I found that conversation, you know, illuminating because I, I really didn't understand anything actually going into that. Uh, but that was very helpful for me.
2: Well, you know, it's, it's, it's actually fun to do as a collective because we just get together. We all have questions and we just start throwing questions at them. And if you got the right guest, they can just. Swat them away one by one, and we come away more informed 25 minutes later.
0: I I love that episode, too, because I felt like none of us knew anything about monkeypox. And we walked out of there so much more knowledgeable than we started.
2: So, Ron, we want to maybe give people a little background on where you're coming from. You just graduated with a Ph.D. in statistics from Carnegie Mellon, and you stayed on there. Faculty at Carnegie Mellon, tenure-track faculty, we know that people have been trying to pry you away from the virtuous career of academia for, you know, more lucrative endeavors and you've held out. So um, we're glad you're still on our side of things though, you know, whatever you need to do, whatever you want to do, but you're just, so one congrats on your PhD. We've known you through most of it, I think. And it's been fun to see. Thank you. You've always seemed wiser beyond your years. You come on as like a first year PhD student telling us about the world. We're like, tell us more, tell us more. (laughs) So it seems natural to see you in a faculty position.
5: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, I'm officially a CMU lifer. I guess I did my undergrad CMU uh, PhD, and yeah, now I'm assistant teaching professor. So I'm teaching track faculty in the department, uh, and so it's a bit unusual at CMU. I get to really have um, a lot of leeway in terms of what I do research-wise. I'm still expected to turn out research content, so part of my evaluation and Capabilities as faculty are going to be about my initiatives I take with sports analytics, for instance. Mm-hmm. And that stems from you know, leadership in our department with Rebecca Nugent, really providing a lot of support on that end. And uh, I, I feel lucky I've been in the right place at the right time. You know, at the very beginning, I was mentored by Sam Ventura. He really mm-hmm. took me under his wing, and I learned so much from him at the beginning. So anything that I said that sounded smart when I was a first year PhD student, I owe entirely to Sam.
2: Sam. <laughs> Sam's one of our favorite interviews, so that doesn't surprise us too much. But you guys got – you're in a central place for sports analytics at Carnegie Mellon. Y'all have helped make it that way. We want to hear more about what you guys have going on at Carnegie Mellon. We know your annual conference. It's one of the best conferences in sports analytics. In fact, we'd recommend anybody who's trying to work, is working, or wants to work in sports analytics to attend that fall conference. I think it may be the last weekend or so of October this year. It's reliably one of the best – and um, it's also a fun gathering. So but yeah. what else? what are you doing with that? And what else is going on around Carnegie Mellon these days?
5: Yeah, so the conference upcoming uh, October 28th, 29th, uh, the 28th on a Friday, that's going to be a, a big data bull workshop. I'm going to lead sort of a instructional workshop on uh, working with NFL tracking data. So that should be a fun experience. Um, and then the 29th is going to be the day full of talks. So our keynote. Uh, Doug Fearing from Zealous Analytics. And it's kind of fitting because this aligns with uh, CMU Homecoming Weekend. And Doug did his undergrad at CMU. Uh, mm. So nice to have him back in town. And then we have um, Robin Ritchie uh, over at the, the Powerhouse, uh, Simon Fraser university mm-hmm. she's a winner of the big data bowl big data cup so as far as i was concerned she could talk about whatever she wanted to mm-hmm. but i believe she's going to focus on um uh, her work with uh, hockey player tracking data and then we also have jacob goldstein from uh, monumental uh, sports uh, group so the mm-hmm. the dc area basketball uh, group and he's going to talk about some of the work he does uh specifically wmba and we're going to have a lineup from our reproducible research competition. So that's underway. We have people submitting papers, valuations going to be coming out. So, uh, And then we also have content from students that we just had in the summer undergrad research program I run. Uh, so this just concluded a few weeks ago. It was a pretty intensive five days a week, June through July. We have undergrads from uh, programs across the country, students from Variety of backgrounds, uh, not even just statistics majors. We had mechanical engineer major, uh, biology majors, et cetera, just coming in, getting their hands on data science, and uh, they
2: passion what's, for sports. What's an example of a project that came out of that work? Yeah, so
5: I mean, a nice, uh, more of a clean project, I would say. Um, we had students working on icing the kicker. All right. So does it is there an actual effect from icing the kicker in the NFL and looking at it from a, a causal inference perspective? All right. So this was a partnership with uh, Professor Ryan Elmore over at University of Denver, he served as an external uh, advisor on this. But you can easily see that, OK, when teams call timeouts uh, before a kick taking place. All right. There tend to be biased towards longer kicks. Or in other words, a team is not going to call a timeout on a kick that's just, you know, a short distance, then why would they even bother? So that type of concept leads to, you know, doing something such as matching in the causal inference realm, right? All right, well,
3: this. Cade can skip me because I was going to ask you how you actually do it. Do you match different kicks or do you use propensity scores or what kind of methods do you actually use? Them? Yeah, so
5: this, this was a great project for students to learn about uh, matching based on things such as, you know, the distance of the kick or context derived from uh, things like win probability, taking into account, you know, what's the score differential? Maybe that leverages and compiles a bunch of information together about like the you know how clutch of a moment it could be Uh, so a great project for you know undergrads to dive in and learn about causal inference. And I could tell you that at the end of the day, the ice and the kicker effects still kind of
3: look the same regardless of what we did. It's pretty
2: minimal and not really there. Not really there, no effect, okay. Yeah.
3: No, I just wanted to ask a quick follow-up. Is the data thick enough to really get good estimates of it? Like, are there enough of these instances or do so you have to go back a long way in time and then you worry about non-stationarity and the things we always worry about? And that's
5: a great question because it's also is how, what do you even define as icing the kick right and so they just looked at any moment in which a timeout took place beforehand but i mean there's questions of is it only moments where you know the score differential is this close or just at the exact end of the game you know there's and you know it's a great point of you know as you start to do more of this filtering and filtering uh you're going to get at you know, a reduction of ends. So your standard errors are going to go up wider and wider. Right. And so just to clarify, icing the kicker, we're talking about the opposing team on defense calling a timeout uh, right before the, the, the team attempting to make the field goal to, you know, a tie or win the game takes place in order to, you know, make it you know a stressful situation like oh they call a timeout so now the kicker has to redo the attempt or whatever and and do it again or something to make it more likely they believe that they will miss the kick
0: um, can i ask you just a quick question ron uh, I, I don't know um how big an effect you think that would be but wouldn't it you'd expect it to be small uh even yeah well if that's what real? we observe yeah no we and, observe and, and therefore small. and therefore power has got to be almost impossible to generate
5: yeah. right yeah and so I mean that's why it's it's a challenge to see is it actually real or not and one of the things that we had a, a conversation with uh, Mike Lopez you know director of data uh, NFL um, and the belief that you know if this is a very small effect, if it actually exists, if the team has a timeout and it's a situation where they don't need that timeout for later, then yeah go ahead and just call it what difference does it make anyway?
1: yeah and I, I mean i think I think kind of the cool thing about uh, the the approach is it's yeah i mean you, i've seen the kicker as a relatively kind of rare phenomenon in football. But there's a lot of other kind of strategic kind of decisions that happen at a greater rate. And I mean, this idea of kind of bringing more kind of causal kind of thinking and, you know, things like like propensity score matching or some of these kind of more matching techniques for controlling for context. I I feel like those would be kind of broadly applicable across like, you know, second, like, you know, going forward on fourth down decisions or going for two points instead of one on a conversion, etc.
5: I mean, this is a theme across. A variety of sports and this was something i am not a causal inference expert but then for this summer i had to learn material myself to work on some of these projects for these with these students because we had projects regarding uh the effect of shifting and for instance if you look at shifting all right so when an mlb major league baseball when the defense shifts left-handed hitters tend to suffer in terms of their offensive performance but as it turns out, when shifts occur on right handed hitters, they seem to be doing somewhat better in terms of types of offensive metrics of getting on base, uh, reduction in strike sh- strikeouts. And so the question is what is causing that? Is it some weird selection? bias of some kind uh so it's it's an interesting thing right so you have to think about okay we're probably matching for the types of hitters uh in terms of when they're shifted against when they're not shifted against uh and so it's you know that's just one other example and just thinking about you know learning about causal inference becoming increasingly more important especially in the world of sports it's so applicable
2: well, Ron, let's, let's take that as an opportunity to ask how you think about the field of sports analytics generally right now. If you were just to characterize where we are, what the most important margins are, what you think the interesting issues are, you have a pretty good view across the sport. How would you, how would you characterize it?
3: Well, I think besides advocating for randomized experiments by coaches during the game, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the ideal world, right?
5: Uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, we could take advantage of minor league baseball more so. <laughs> full, that <way>. full factorial
1: <laughs> design of all quarterbacks and all coaches, just so we can really get <laughs> that.
2: That's great. Really right.
5: I mean, the big, the big area, you know, that has been the theme, I guess, for the past so many years is still with advances in technology, and you're talking about. Uh, Player tracking data, what's collected at the fractional level, what's collected in terms of uh, sensors, uh, having new equipment that has, you know, information collected with regards to the movement of a baseball bat. I literally I have a ball on my desk right now, actually, uh, Diamond Kinetics, its a sensor uh, built into uh, a baseball so we can track then literal movements of a pitcher's delivery in their grip. So I've been playing with that data myself, uh, uh, working with Diamond Kinetics on some research on that end. Uh, and, you know, biometric data, understanding biomechanics and movements. I mean, that that's where the frontier's going. It's still a matter of how the hell do we process all that information and what does it actually mean, right? If we think about what does a team care about uh, from looking at that data and understanding it, you know, how what, what does that help them? with regards to figuring out who's the next, you know, Jacob DeGrom or, you know, who's going to be the next uh, Patrick Mahomes, right? That's what they want to do.
2: Well, let's do that for a second because biometrics do seem to us, we've had some of those conversations the last couple months, they do seem to us to be one of the recently emerged frontiers. And um, it's, but the trick is, it seems super relevant to some sports and less relevant to other sports. So, obviously baseball, and it's, it does seem like something teams can use both to assess pitcher performance, maybe tweak pitcher performance, maybe manage injury risks, where everything is rotational. It's everything a pitcher does, which is half the team, can be analyzed with biometrics. But you take it to football, and, yeah, you can maybe assess a quarterback. Maybe you can work with the quarterback. Some There are there are quarterback camps out there that use it intensively. But outside the quarterbacks, which granted is a big position, what's an NFL team going to do if they got serious about biometrics? And I'm not saying I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying I, I, I know that they don't have anything. I'm saying I don't know. And so how intensely should they invest on getting to know that if it's that uncertain?
5: Well, I think that's what you're hitting as even a broader point of just the, you know, how much should you actually invest in? research and development in general for different teams so like baseball it's easier in a sense of thinking about this long-term view and so they think about more putting in the type of money or you know investment to say invest in uh building infrastructure in place that will play pay off five years from now all right because the gm the coaches they're they're going to be there five years from now all right but then if you look at an nfl team It's a very short term window. So something that's going to invest for the type of weight that you won't see for a couple of years, right? Because, you know, this idea of like using technology to, you know, we're not gonna get an immediate payoff from just buying some equipment and then seeing, you know, oh, a month later, the players are gonna be better, right? It's gonna take handling <laughs> and understanding the data. How do we use that data for actual like decision-making, right, that takes a lot of time. And really, NFL teams are just shorter windows.
2: Well, that's why so much of it goes back to the owners and the yeah, infrastructure yeah, yeah. they're investing in or not investing in. They're the only ones, you're right, they're the only ones with the long enough window for some of these deep R&D efforts. Adi?
0: Yeah, so it's interesting that you brought up biomechanics, um, uh, Ron, because I think in baseball, so much of that was driven by people privately. They were out there hiring the coaches, hiring the doctors and the special equipment um, so they could improve their performance. And it, it is in many ways um, thought of as the next great frontier, I guess, in all sports, but it's been dangling out there in front of us um, that it's supposed to sort of stop injuries. And, and I can't wait to see actual data that shows that it does that. I don't, I mean, I, I know that pitchers have gotten a lot, they throw a lot harder. And I think, I think by all measure, they've gotten better. Is it because of the availability of the technology, just so you can get that feedback? and then be just improve or is it because of the actual biomechanical analysis that says you know you need to do this with your shoulder you're not doing it and and or your elbow or whatever it is i know that's all out there but i think these things are are un, unknown still what are your thoughts you have you
5: yeah um, no i I, I agree with you i agree with your sentiment on that in terms of like the prime example of this and pitching is um a facility a group a driveline baseball uh, mm-hmm. led by kyle body and he was someone that then worked with the cincinnati reds and they've become sort of like a, a place where coaches are now being plucked from because their driveline baseball was formed uh, in terms of using camera-based high-speed cameras to uh, process and track, you know, how pitchers are delivering. Um, you know, there's all these stories of pitchers going there and whether it be Clayton Kershaw or younger guys uh, developing new pitches from what they can process uh, with that group. Right. And, you know, not necessarily preventing injuries, but, improving their you know velocity maybe adding a new pitch etc it's it's really been like at the forefront of like player development right uh more so on the pitching side than probably on the hitting side as we see uh, in baseball in terms of strikeout rates mm-hmm. um, but that's I, I think you're right in the sense though of just there's still so much unknown about that um and it kind of gets at something when you know, even just with, like, player tracking data that I've started you know, realize more and more, I am a statistician by training, and yet a lot of these problems in sports analytics now, I need to talk to people that have physics backgrounds. I need to talk to people who have biomechanics backgrounds to understand more of this context. You know, it's no longer playing around with uh, box score stats or just summaries at the end. It's there's forces, there's, you know, actual physical motions that have to be uh, realistically captured. If for instance, I want to model player movement on the field, I could try to do it empirically, but I could maybe come up with something that's impossible. Right. And so I have to spend more time now talking to people that know what they're talking about on that end. Um, that's remarkable. Really that's, process.
2: And that's, you know, we've talked to, uh, people with PhDs in biomechanics and who have models for how the body rotates, but we haven't quite heard it said the way you just put it because we often talk about what domain knowledge does a statistician need in order to really be impactful. And typically more than a statistician wants to believe, right? I mean, it's not quite enough to be just a pure statistician in most settings, and especially if you're going to contribute to say a team or really advancing knowledge, you need domain knowledge, but you're saying, well, actually these days it's gotten so damn complicated. Not only do you un- need to understand the sport you need you understand some of the underlying physics of it, which is really something.
5: Yeah. It's, it's becoming increasingly challenging and um, you know, uh, player tracking data work that you see with the big data bull, you see that more and more now uh, people accounting for physics based models in there in terms of, space ownership was a primary example of this in terms of who is expected to arrive at the spot before anybody else Mm -hmm. actually Mm -hmm. accounting for, okay, what is the size of the player uh, when doing so rather than, yeah, we could toss a toss us in the regression of some kind and try to predict it. But is it actually physically possible given what we know about how they're moving on the field?
2: One of the things that, that that means to me is that folks on teams probably are well served by being um, open-minded and soliciting expertise from a wide range of folks. You've increasingly, as these things become more complicated, no one person can have all the expertise to advance knowledge. And so I'm I'm thinking about, for example, um, injury prevention and and, uh, performance data. You need a lot of basic models of physiology to process those data. You can have all the catapult data from training camp in the world, but if you don't understand physiology, at a pretty basic level, you're probably not going to make the right conclusions with those data, right? But you may not be both able to handle the data empirically and have the physiology. So increasingly need more more perspectives. This is one. This is probably one of the premises that Doug Fearing has in creating Zealous is we're going to bring all the expertise in house and you may not be able to in your little football shop of two analysts have all that expertise, but us as a third party, we're going to have 30 PhDs in here, maybe we can have it. But for most shops, I think this means as it gets more complicated, you've got to be more open-minded and get more perspectives. Ron, let's change gears. Talking about optimal performance, one of the things we want to talk to you about is our performance as a podcast. We thought you might be an interesting person. Well, not least because you were criticizing us on air, criticizing us on the internet's we thought, well, come on, man. Come tell it to us. So I,
5: I have to admit, like the tweet I sent out about the Yankees comment, that's probably more of a sign of my jealousy than anything. You know, I'm Pittsburgh, so that means I watch NL Central baseball. Well, you know, you out there get to watch AL East, NL East, and all these great, good teams winning, competing. So maybe it's a little bit of like, yeah, I get it. All right. The Yankees are great. Yada, yada, yada. <laughs>
1: I uh, made know, a conscious effort to try and move us away from AL East. Not, she, not at all related to the fact that the Yankees are so much better than the Red Sox this season. Yeah, there's there's
2: one team in that division below 500 and Shane's wearing a baseball cap for that team right now. Um, but seriously, we have made an effort periodically on the show to give ourselves evaluations, suggest ways we can improve things every couple of years. We've done that. The last couple The pandemic has given us so much to navigate that we haven't done one of those formal things. We've never done one externally. We thought we might have you on. You can channel things you hear from other folks in the sports analytics community and give us some good, hard coaching. We're always criticizing players and coaches and GMs. Let's turn around and take the criticism ourselves. Let's model receiving feedback and taking constructive criticism and Let's get some ideas from an outside voice, someone who listens to the show for a long time, on what we can do to make the show better. What do we do that's, that's good, that we should keep on doing, and what are some ideas on how we can make the show better? And just to add a little more value to it, we are in the middle of pivoting, in all likelihood, we've said this once before, but this time I think we're more intent on it, pivoting away from doing COVID first half hour every week. So with all that said, Ron, we thought no one better than you to give us some feedback or to channel feedback from the broader community.
5: All right. So first thing I just want to say the, you know, everyone loves having guest quarter at the end, all, you know, everyone always enjoys, you know, the different guests that are on. And so that's big positive feedback just from that get go. Interviews are always great, et cetera. Um, Big thing people want to see. Same as
3: same as in my home field, Ron. You always put the the milk at the back of the store. Put the guests at the back of the show. (laughs) Now, big thing.
2: People can skip. People can skip to the back of the show a lot. more. Never never, never mind then.
5: (laughs) So the thing uh, that I agree with that a lot of people want to see come back because I think he used to do this was keep record of predictions. Over mm. unders, etc. We want to we want to see track records of performance. And I will say this is probably going to put more work for like Matt and company rather than you, <laughs> but okay. You know how well are you doing as forecasters in your predictions? Uh And even just you know, I remember just thinking you know over these past couple of years forecasts about covid and i, I want to see how each of you did at the end <laughs> of the day now okay, so, forecast
2: so so one this is utterly reasonable and it would just be good modeling for us to do that but i'm curious why is it just on principle or do you actually want to know whether or not you should be listening to us i think i think it's
5: part on principle of just you know having a good assessment of this and then uh I, some people have indicated wanting to even have, like, public contributions of predictions, see how how the public ranks against each of you, mm-hmm. right, in terms of, you know, those weekly predictions of NFL games and whatnot, you know. Can, can you beat some uh, Wharton professors in forecasting mm-hmm. NFL mm-hmm. outcomes?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good, good.
0: Adi. Yeah, I, I think that's a great suggestion. I loved it when we used to do the over-unders. I don't know if you want to comment on on that. We used to stick them in at the very end of our show. Um, and that would be potentially something fun. With the COVID, it's kind of complicated because I don't think we actually kept track in the formal way. But I do think of that as an interesting segment for us to go back if we're going to unpack COVID let's link, think about all the predictions that were made either by us or by others and see what, well, how did we do? I think it's a good rule. I think that we as statisticians should be the forefront and leading with that. So I like that. I like that, that, uh, suggestion.
2: So I, the one, the one pushback I would give is that I, in general, we're betting we're, we're picking 50 50 propositions and likely don't have a lot of edge. Plus we're, we may or may not be working with the model. So we really might not have an edge. Um, and I tend to think that the process and the way we think about it and talk about it should be the value add to do that transparently. For example, we need to always have a, a reason. And I'm always interested in hearing my guys reasons for their picks. Um, that's the one, because I, I don't have any, I don't think that I'm beating the market off the top of my head, picking games against the line in the NFL. I just don't think that's happening. And I'll be happy to track massive Massey Peabody online, but I think as a principle, it is the right thing to do for sure. And then it would be fun to TS up against uh, public picks for sure. That's, that's a great idea. Okay. Ron, what else you got, man? Come on, bring, bring, bring. So
5: I I don't necessarily agree with this myself because I love football, but I have received feedback that maybe there's a bit too much football Mm. discussed Mm. throughout the year. And that I, I I mean I could talk about college football, professional football all the time, but i body have is doing a
2: dance, yeah. right? A happy dance right now. <laughs> Whereas that's in my body. mind, I'm like, well, that's
1: just tough. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, listeners, that's just tough. Yeah, I'm, Come I'm on, gonna, we need to do more swimming,
0: right? And biking, right? <laughs> we need to bring them in. Well, it's so <laughs> more competitive eating.
2: No, no, no. Don't say more competitive eating. Um but, okay, that's a good follow-up question, Adi. One, besides this so clearly being wrong, but let's just entertain the possibility that it's right. What would you want more of? More of the big four kind of evenly spread? Or do you want more of kind of the exotics and the Olympics that we do periodically? I know it's hard for you, Ron, because you are a football fan. But what, what, do, you think, what do you think the right thing to do is if we, if we try to spread it I, out?
5: I, I, from the sentiment I got from people, more equal of the big four. Okay because it seems in balance of the big ones because you, you do pretty good coverage of unique sports with different guests that come on. I think that's where it's good to bring it. The, the guests, you know, having young guests, variety of backgrounds, that helps with discussion of what's going on across sports, right. You know, getting tapping into what's going on, whether, you know, maybe you know, some people express interest in like esports discussion taking place. Cause mm-hmm. I, I will tell you and, you know, discuss with this audience before of, There are so many students that are interested in esports coming up. And Mm -hmm. I'll be honest, I don't really know much about it myself, uh, but there are people working on projects with esports data. And talk about an area where you don't have any uncertainty in what's being recorded. It's, it's exact, you know, yeah. exactly where people are at and, you know, in these games that are taking place. Uh, so that's, mm-hmm. that's an area that's becoming more popular. And so there's interest in understanding just
1: what's going on in that space.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: i don't mind leading the charge on esports i i'm kind of an avid video gamer not the kind of video games that get turned into esports but still i i i find that real a really interesting endeavor but i i will also concede along that lines in terms of the kind of big four is that i do think you know we of, of of all the kind of the the hockey is the one that we probably um undercover relative to the other ones and you know i i've i've been I, I know I've been kind of called out by some of some of your friends and colleagues about that. About that. I will I, say those I've made a concerted effort to try and up the hockey.
5: They have said it's gotten better though over the past yeah. year. So this past year,
2: yeah, the last fifteen months has been peak hockey for us. <laughs> Maybe we I can, think you
5: uh, talked to Sam twice. No, yeah. so I mean yeah. that's why he's positive about that. Then, of course, hey, yeah.
2: we were we were geeked about the Calgary Edmonton series. Oh I mean, yeah, well yeah, and no, had I mean, us all true. like amped about that whole thing.
0: So let me, let me add a couple of two cents on that. Um, I think, first of all, it, it, in Cade's mind, there's big five, because I think he separates college football from yeah. NFL football. <laughs> so that, that's part of, partly where it seems so. so two-fifths, over- two-fifths uh, football. <laughs> two-fifths. But I think one of the things that is important is to recognize that, um, that we, we, I think of ourselves as, as, a, as a statistics show, as much as we are a sports analytics show, and where we have the opportunity to teach something about statistics, it's important to run with that. And no, 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 I have nothing against you know, hockey or basketball in particular, but I think there's less um, sort of grounded statistical conversation that comes out of those subjects. And, and maybe, I mean, obviously there's plenty there, but there's so much interesting decision making data analytics in football today. And of course, there's always been historically with baseball and the others are just sort of harder because of the lack of great data and the lack of well-defined problems and the enormous complexity of the sport and, and soccer as well. It's incredibly complicated. And, there's, and they also have smaller public personas. So maybe we could charge in there, but it's just a lot harder.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of, maybe I'll push back on that a little bit because I think part of what makes it challenging as a, as a discussion topic is, I mean, they are challenging sports in ways that baseball isn't. But I think it's also that, I think, to really kind of be able to offer the insight, you have to have a lot of subject domain knowledge. And unless you're Eric Bradlow, keeping up with like all four <laughs> Major sports plus you know different subs- well, secondary I was about to say, ones for me is impossible.
3: Uh, go- golf, Seriously. tennis and soccer are wonderful other sports. matter of fact, I think I've learned as I personally felt like I've learned as much about analytics and statistics from our golf analytics and tennis discussions as I had about the other sports as well.
2: That they're good material. I'm the opposite. As I pretend to like college football, but truthfully, I just like University of Texas college football. I know one team, one team in one sport is what I got. That's my capacity. It's terrible.
5: And it's been a rather depressing team for so many years now. Anyway, Thank uh, you for but that. Audie's That's point, <laughs> but, uh, Audie's point but, just bring but, it back. The
2: two, um, two season-ending injuries we had to offensive starters over the weekend already has been a bad place, Ron, so not great. Not great. <laughs>
5: I had to throw that in there, but um, you know, back to Audie's point, even, I, I mean, maybe that's more of just the relation of how, you know, even though obviously football is very complex, you know, it it still has the discrete nature to it of, we can look at a decision, you know, taking place at a particular moment, you know, baseball, it's always these nice discrete events taking place. And so when we talk about, you know, thinking about from a statistical perspective of analyzing like decisions that happen during the course of these games. You know, basketball so fluid. Hockey is so fluid and chaotic that we can't necessarily zoom in on something at a particular moment and sort of, you know, opine about it in whatever way that we want or think about it from, you know, a, a statistical model perspective. It's much more challenging. Right? We can look at it more globally from like a player evaluation viewpoint, you know, thinking about like, discussions of uh, who are actually performing better, given the nature of who they're going up against, who are they playing with at the same time. But it's just much more difficult because they're so fluid in relation to baseball and football.
2: Well, we can bring, at the very least, we can bring um, uh, uh, an inquiry mindset. to. We don't have to be the expert that we can come in and ask the questions as an outsider. Adi, when we first started this show eight years ago, wasn't that much of a football fan. He's really come along. And part of it's been because he's been sitting here with us crazy people asking questions. And so we could do we could do more of that with basketball and hockey for sure. By the way, the World Cup is going to be in this next year. And so we're going to we're going to pull in soccer in a big way. And we'll have plenty of naive questions when that one rolls around, Ron. We're nearing the end. I want to put you on the spot, just come from a personal perspective and a little bit less topic-wise and more stylistic-wise. <laughs> Give us an example of the show, at the show when you're not liking it. How? Does, how what's the segment doing? What's happening in a segment when you're like fast-forwarding or you're kind of tired of it? And then we'll end on the opposite, which is. What are we doing when we're at our best? How would you describe the show when it's at its best?
5: So I guess to me those two kind of go together because the, it's at its best when you're all together, and it might be at its worst when it's just one person, you know. And maybe that makes sense if it's just you know one of you by yourself and trying to just run with the whole thing. And, you know, we don't have the nice discussion, the back and forth, uh, going on about you know coverage of the, uh, of sports. Uh, mm-hmm. and yeah. and that's even feedback I've heard from others. And the, um, I mean, that's just even like a scheduling difficulty that it can be right. Uh, so an attempt to always kind of have someone else there, maybe a guest or whatnot that can be a, a guest host, right. Uh, to interact with in a way, um,
2: we don't get too much. We don't step on each other's toes too much. We don't talk. Oh, God knows we're sloppy. We talk over each other. People with... enjoy it though. Well, that's good to hear. So more good sloppiness, fellas. Don't hold. Don't hold back. You can ignore my instruction. Like that's right in my wheelhouse. That's that right, <laughs> right there. Don't encourage him, Ron. My gosh.
0: I think we've improved actually a lot over the last couple of years because of the, having each other's. Um, the zoom doesn't allow us to step on each other as much as we used to be in the, the studio and we've learned to kind of negotiate that and i think that's actually helped and i, and I love our balance now at least compared to what it was when we were live it was so easy to jump in that it was it was uh, it became a little bit, little bit of a free for all
2: Last question. If we're going to do a Ron Yurko special show, what would the topic be? Give us, give us the half hour that we could, if we, this isn't, there's is a hypothetical unless you pick a really good one. What would the Ron Yurko special focus on for 30 minutes?
5: It would be a college football preview an NFL preview
2: <laughs> going
5: into baseball playoffs.
2: So I mean,
5: I'm a bad person to ask. <laughs> All
2: right. It sounds like you're going to enjoy September just fine. Yeah, exactly. Um, All right. Listen, man, great of you to jump on the show. Thank you for stepping into the hot seat and giving us the feedback. Um, Thank you for rounding up some feedback from the community and know that we're up for that um, informally anytime as well. And Ron, we really appreciate you both as a listener for the show, um, but also what you do for the community more broadly and the role you play. And it's only going to get bigger as you've moved into this position and we look forward to all that comes next with it.
5: Yeah. And thanks for having me again.
2: Absolutely. Ron Yurko, assistant teaching professor at Carnegie Mellon, longtime stalwart, even though he's a youngster in the sports analytics space. He's going to be making a big difference for a long time. That has been another two hours of Wharton Moneyball, two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusX and closing out Q4 with the whole crew Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Ali Weiner, and this is kate Massey. On behalf of that team and our boss, Matty Datz, our associate boss man Dion Simpkins, appreciate you guys listening come back and join us next time between now and then enjoy your sports